Now you talk about terror. Welcome to another podcast from the Chris Hedges Report. What about me? I'm Chris Hedges, and you can find more of my work at chrishedges.substack.com. In Eric Hobsbawm's book, Bandits, he examined how outlaws such as Robin Hood and Pancho Villa transformed themselves into social revolutionaries. The filmmakers Dan Cohen and Kim Ives have done the same in their three-part film, Another Vision, Inside Haiti's Uprising. They tell the story of Jimmy Barbecue Cherizier, who has united half of Port-au-Prince slums through the formation of the revolutionary forces of the G9 family and allies. The Armed Neighborhood Federation is in the crosshairs of the U.S. empire, which seeks to discredit it and blame it for the chaos and violence that plagues the country. The filmmakers chronicle Cherizier's transformation from a stellar member of Haiti's police force into a revolutionary leader, the disinformation campaign waged against him by the U.S. government and Haitian oligarchy, and how his neighborhood is punished for its effective resistance. The story they tell is one more chapter in the over two centuries of Haitian resistance to outside domination following the only successful slave revolt in human history, which overthrew the French slaveholding class in 1804. Haiti has been paying for this revolt ever since, literally. France only recognized Haiti's independence on the condition that it repay the slaveholders for their lost quote-unquote property. Payments that were still being made on that quote independence debt, end quote, in the 20th century. The country has been economically crippled since its independence. The Western powers have installed a series of pliant and corrupt governments. The U.S. repeatedly carried out military interventions, including its invasion and occupation of Haiti from 1915 through 1934. The U.S. formed and trained the Haitian army and police used to crush liberation movements. Washington tolerated the father-son dictatorship of Francois Papadoc and Jean-Claude Babydoc Duvalier as a counterweight to Fidel Castro's Cuba. The Duvalier's notorious paramilitary corps, known as the Tonton Makut, killed as many as 60,000 Haitians from 1957 to 1986. Over the 20th century, Washington turned Haiti into a plantation and sweatshop for U.S. corporations, leaving the country the poorest in the Western Hemisphere. An anti-imperialist former Catholic priest, Jean-Bertrand Aristide, was elected president in 1990, shocking the U.S. He was overthrown in a 1991 military coup. He regained the presidency from 1994 to 1996 and from 2001 to 2004 when he was ousted in another coup by right-wing ex-army paramilitary units that invaded the country from across the Dominican border. Following that second successful coup, UN troops occupied the country from 2004 until 2019, oversaw the suppression of popular movements, exploited impoverished women in the sex trade, sanctioned the privatization of state industries and social services, and introduced cholera, a disease previously unknown in the country, killing an estimated 10,000 people. Haiti has been left without a functioning government or infrastructure, including a health care system ever since. 
Nearly 60% of the population lives in poverty, 30% are food insecure, and 50% lack access to clean water. Waves of Haitians have fled the country. Gang violence has turned whole parts of Haiti into lawless enclaves. In 2003, Aristide's lawyers calculated that France owed Haiti some $22 billion in restitution for the unjust independence debt, and Washington owes a comparable amount of reparations for the crimes committed during its military occupations. But the Western powers are determined to once again thwart the aspirations of the Haitian people, who despite it all, keep resisting. Joining me to discuss another vision inside Haiti's uprising, which you can watch on YouTube, are its directors, Dan Cohen and Kim Ives. So, Kim, let's begin with you uh, uh, and just talk about your own connections with Haiti and what prompted you to make the film. Well, um, I was sort of drafted into the Haitian liberation struggle, uh, fresh out of school. I uh, uh, jettisoned Harvard to go work in the trenches, as it were. And uh, one of my first um, missions, assignments, was to make a film about Haiti, uh, which I, I did in the period from 1977 to 83. I won a second prize at Cannes. It was a pretty big deal back in the day. And uh, then I was, I thought when I'd finished that, I was done with my service to the Haitian struggle. But they said, no, no, we're starting a newspaper. So I've been doing Haitian newspapers ever since until uh, this, I mean, also working on other film projects along the way. But this one was uh, sort of our biggest project in many years with uh, Dan Cohen and Uncaptured Media. And uh, so uh, really our work at Haiti Liberté, which is the paper I uh, work with uh, in my day job, is um, to create the conditions, the information, the ideological pushback uh, to the dominant narrative. And um, this is a case in point. This is one of the strongest. The newspaper was not enough. People don't read uh, as much anymore these days. And uh, so film is really the way to go. And we put our all into working on this with Dan and uh, think it's going to make a big difference. So there were two points that were made in the film that I thought were very important. Uh, one is the uh, what happens when countries like Haiti are ruthlessly exploited by imperial powers, uh, that it leads to a kind of breakdown. That's something that, of course, I saw in Central America, where I spent five years in countries like El Salvador, Honduras, uh, that, that there's nothing intrinsic within their culture uh, that leads to this uh, kind of anarchy and chaos and lawlessness, uh, but it is the distortions uh, from outside forces. And the other uh, thing that I think you did really well in your film is tell the story from the perspective of the resistors who are very effectively demonized. Uh, and, and one of the things that, that you highlight in the film is the complicity of human rights groups uh, who essentially follow the dictates of the State Department and the dictates of those who fund them, the Soros Foundation and et cetera. So let's let's begin, Dan, by talking a little bit about Cherizier, who he is 
uh, and and uh, why he's important. And then uh, maybe we can go into uh, the campaign against him. And I mean, how pervasive that campaign is. The media, of course, as you point out, echoes this this narrative that uh, essentially discredits him. I mean, I should also note that uh, resistance leaders are uniformly referred to as bandits, as was Sandino in Nicaragua or anywhere else. But uh, maybe you can speak to that, Dan. Exactly, Chris. Uh, Jimmy Barbecue Cherizier. Barbecue is his nickname, which he was uh, given when he was a kid, um, growing up in the in the streets of of Port-au-Prince. Um, and not because, as if you if you watch uh, the Vice documentaries, um, you'll hear it's because he likes to burn people alive. But it's actually because there were a lot of other Jimmys in the neighborhood, and um, he his mother sold grilled meats on the street, and so he just got nicknamed Barbecue. So it's kind of a little uh, taste of the propaganda campaign that that is waged against um, Cherizier. But he's a, he was a cop, um, grew up in the slums, became a cop and and did very well. And within the confines of the system, did what he could to sort of protect his neighborhood and um, and do everything he, he could. But um, essentially, he was the sacrificial lamb for a political project um, that the U.S. and the OAS, the Organization of American States, wanted for a sort of regime change um, in Haiti. And so they needed a bad guy, a fall guy, and that became Cherizier. And so the flaws that he saw in the system where he says, you know, I couldn't ever arrest um, anyone who was of the upper class, who lived up in the hills and in the oligarchy, they were exempt from the law. I could only arrest people, you know, who were from my same class, the poor. And so those criticisms that he had suddenly, um, it, him being sacrificed, poured gas on the fire. And he went through essentially a process of radicalization where he went from essentially enforcer of the system to its primary um, enemy and seeking to overthrow it. And so that's something we chronicle in the first episode of the documentary. And today, if you Google Jimmy Cherizier, you will see any number of articles that talk about how he is um, the devil. He's responsible for all of Haiti's problems. He's um, a mass killer, a mass murderer. He's carried out numerous massacres. And this narrative has emanated throughout the mass media and has been widely accepted in even among progressive um, sort of orthodox anti-war circles. And so we really sought to um, investigate these claims. And we went to the ground and we uh, talked to people who who live there. We talked to witnesses um, and we also examined all of the numerous human rights uh, group reports about these massacres. And they all boil back down to the same source, which is a supposed human rights group called the uh, Haitian National Network for the Defense of Human Rights, commonly known as the RNDDH, which is heavily funded by the National Endowment for Democracy, which is essentially a CIA cutout meddling tool, and also by George Soros' Open Society Foundation, among others. And um, the leader of the RNDDH, Pierre Esperance is his name, is well known among um, anti-imperialists who have followed Haiti because he was a central figure in the 2004 coup d'etat against 
Jean-Bertrand Aristide. And so he's essentially playing a very similar role today, yet has kind of somehow um, flown under the radar of the of progressive movements. Um, and so that's one of the things that we really highlight in our film. So essentially, Cherizier has been the subject of a very sophisticated disinformation campaign uh, to make him appear as if, you know, he is the target. And as we he's he's responsible for the country's problems. And as we know, this kind of character assassination is always the prelude to a physical assassination. So that's kind of uh, what we're building towards today. We have a quote in the film about how groups like this do the work of the CIA. I can't remember the exact quote or where it came from, uh, but but just to, you know, uh, delineate that quote on its source. So that quote, um, it is, uh, we do what the CA used to do um, uh, 20 years ago, something like that. And that's from, that was in the Washington Post, um, published in an article by David Ignatius in, I think, 1991. And he was quoting, that quote is attributed to the founder of the National Endowment for Democracy, um, who Alan Weinstein is his name. And basically in the 1980s, as the CIA and um, was getting a bad reputation for its dirty, you know, its dirty wars in, in Central America and, and South Asia. And the, and the U.S. was sort of moving from um, secret uh, cloak and dagger kind of operations more to so-called democracy promotion. Uh, that was the method. So instead of um, under the table CIA, CIA operations, it became um, above board National Endowment for Democracy operations, which are, you know, all over the world today, um, uh, basically carrying out political maneuvers and regime change operations. And Haiti is is one of those examples. So, Kim, let's talk about what Cherizier has done. Um, he and we should talk about just on background to, so people understand the context, the gang violence, the uh, in the slums of Port-au-Prince, the way various gangs uh, essentially fight over their turf, and uh, and and Shrizi has now built this alliance, this uh, essentially bringing these games gangs together, uh, and not only bringing them together, but giving them a kind of political vision. Um, let's talk about that, and then we can talk about the campaign against him. Right. Well, we have to understand the arc of Haiti over the last forty years. Um, uh, when we made Bitter Cane, before mentioned, uh, in 1983, uh, 40 years ago, uh, Haiti was essentially an agricultural society. Uh, it was 70%, 80% peasant, uh, small peasant production. And uh, what happened was neoliberalism glommed onto Haiti uh, in an accelerated way after the fall of Jean-Claude Duvalier in 1986. And uh, became a kind of a test case, a laboratory, if you will, for uh, U.S. imperial uh, capital penetration. And uh, the peasantry was basically driven off the land. Uh, rice was dumped on the country. It used to be self-sufficient in rice, even export rice uh, out of the Artibonite Valley. It's uh, a rice cradle in the middle of the country. And uh, Bill Clinton and the farmers of Arkansas got together and started to dump uh, half rice at half price on the country. That was destroyed. Oranges were destroyed. Uh, sugar was destroyed. And uh, pretty soon you had the peasants fleeing to the cities and, 
Port-au-Prince at that time, 40 years ago, was uh, maybe just over 500,000. Today, it's over 3 million people. And uh, this is the case in the other metropoles around the country, Cape Haitian, Okai, Jacques Mel. Uh, and most of these people are without jobs. They live in an informal economy, selling Coca-Cola and chiclets on the street, you know, trying to hustle their way. And, um, of course, in this context, you have a, a rise of criminality. And this is increased by the fact that you had two coup d'etats against the country in 1991 and 2004, each one followed by a UN military occupation on the heels of a US slash French slash Canadian uh, military occupation. And uh, mostly that's because the third world countries that work uh, for the UN work at half price to what a US Marine gets. Uh, so this basically displaced the Haitian state, which became debilitated. And as a result, uh, the police force uh, became practically ineffective. And uh, these criminal gangs grew. So in response to them, really since the time of Valier's fall in 1986, there was the phenomenon of what you call vigilance brigades in Haiti, where neighborhoods would band together to keep out the criminals. Previously, it was the former Tonton Makuts who used to maraud after Duvalier fell, uh, and people were just armed with pots and pans and maybe some machetes. But increasingly, these vigilance brigades were hired by the bourgeoisie to guard their warehouse or their factory or their plantation, and uh, they got weapons and they become more. They became more and more uh, powerful and strong, and eventually started to go into business for themselves. This is the story of what happened to Cherizier, because in Lower Delma, which is one of the most blighted, impoverished parts of Port-au-Prince, uh, there were gangs in his neighborhood. And essentially, when he got into the police, which was really a huge uh, victory for somebody who was basically born in the gutter and grew up, uh, you know, just as a, a street urchin, if you will. Uh, and he went through school, went to college, got into the police. He'd, he'd arrived. And uh, then here he was uh, with the gangs infesting his neighborhood. He got together with other cops that he was working with, and they drove the guys out. Uh, and that was in the beginning. But then when the cops turned on him and, and, and tried to hang a botched operation on him, he said, man, you know, these people are really no good. And he uh, got the idea, and we explain it in the film, uh, of uniting all these gangs so they were no longer being used as cannon fodder, as the muscle for the bourgeoisie in their political machinations and vendettas against each other, etc. And so Cherizier, um, in fact, one of his big allies, uh, a guy in uh, Cité Soleil called Iscar, was of the same mind. He was a former physics professor. You know, he was uh, uh, pretty educated uh, for coming out of the streets of City Soleil. And one day, day uh, two other gang leaders came to him from a from a bourgeois who had said, you know, we're going to do a campaign to get so-and-so elected. And he said, listen, I'm not in it. And uh, they said, no, you got to be in it. We told the guy and we took the money. And he said, no, I'm not in it. You guys do what you got to do. They ended up killing his mother and uh, as a reprisal for that. So this sort of cemented a reaction to this uh, criminal gangs in among these neighborhoods. And uh, 
that's where Sherry's Yay went neighborhood by neighborhood. And, you know, it's not in the film, but we've been told stories of how, you know, they would invite somebody who, who like Iskar or, or, or Sherry's Yay used to fight against to come in and join them. And, um, you know, people were concerned about his security. Hey, that guy might shoot you. But he said, no, no, we got to show them that we're ready to trust them. So they'll trust us. So he's cobbled together this, this, um, force and, you know, through a very, uh, articulate and I could say charismatic campaign has begun to convince the population of, uh, his sincerity and effectiveness despite the barrage of disinformation coming from the Haitian mainstream and U.S. mainstream and French mainstream, et cetera, media, Canadian, let's not leave them out. And um, so it's it's a very, and that's really where we are now. We're in the throes of that ideological struggle right now to push back against the disinformation campaign, which is vilifying him. Uh, the same thing I'm sure you've seen in your coverage of El Salvador, et cetera. Uh, the the uh, demonization of people trying to liberate themselves. Let's talk a little bit about the social inequality in Haiti. Sharizier uh, talks quite a bit about the ruling oligarchy, uh, which he says uh, comprises about 5% of Haiti and controls about 85% of the wealth. Uh, so he has a clear or delineated revolutionary message against the ruling class. For him, this is class warfare. And then we should be clear that this is an armed insurgency. He, there are pictures at one point you have of him with an array of automatic weapons behind him. Can you address those issues? Yeah, Chris. So in all of the mainstream media interviews with Cherizier, even the ones that are less foaming at the mouth, uh, he uh, they never talk about the demands that he lists out in essentially every interview, which are clean water, food, um, access to education, good housing, um, jobs. These are the basic things that everyone needs. And the vast majority, the overwhelming majority of Haitians lack. Um, they lack just basic quality of life. And those are the, the fact that those are go unaddressed by the ruling class in Haiti. And the government um, is the reason why Cherizier taps on, taps into this sort of revolutionary fervor, why he's able to to create that. Um, so if you go to areas like Cite Soleil, there are people living hundreds of thousands, even many hundreds of thousands of people living literally in sewage. And this is not by accident. It is a choice of the government, of the international NGOs that pour huge amounts of money into uh, Haiti only to wash it through and line their own pockets. And so you have the canals that run down Port-au-Prince from the hills and carry sewage, but they're blocked by trash that has clogged up the um, canals that, that are supposed to run out into the Caribbean Sea. And, in, and so because they're blocked up, people live in lakes of sewage, which breed all kinds of disease. And um, and so these are the cleaning these up are the demands uh, of the G9, these kinds of things. And so on the other hand, you have this incredible wealth, the total contrast up in the hills 
above Port-au-Prince of areas like Petionville, where the oligarchy lives. And these houses are mansions with Olympic-sized swimming pools and helipads. It looks like something out of Beverly Hills. And that's kind of a side of Haiti that we never see. We only see the poverty, but we don't see the contrast, the inequality. And so that's one of the reasons that, you know, Cherizier is not blaming the people who are living in the slums, but he says this is intentional. Um, uh, This is an intentional project carried out by the bourgeoisie who are in cahoots with the United States and, uh, you know, who are basically acting on behalf of of foreign powers that want to exploit Haiti and maintain the sweatshops um, uh, for their own profit. In terms of arms, uh, this is 100% an armed revolutionary movement. I mean, I'm going to borrow a a quote from uh, the great Kim Ives that Cherizier is Aristide with a gun. If you look at the discourse that Cherizier uses, it's incredibly similar to the discourse of Jean-Bertrand Aristide. Um, And, you know, they talk about class struggle and the conditions that the masses are living in and the need to improve these conditions, except what happened to Aristide is he was cooed two times by the oligarchy in cahoots with the United States. And so I think sort of Haitian consciousness has learned the lesson that if you don't have arms, you can't really carry out any kind of real um, social revolution. And so Cherizier um, has you know, is is well-trained with, with arms and, and knows how to use them and, and knows that they're very important. Kim, let's talk about the campaign against him within Haiti. The government has, I think, issued an arrest warrant for him, although they haven't acted on it. Um, he himself is in physical danger, clearly. Uh, but speak a little bit about what they've done against him and against his movement? Well, what's really interesting to me is that I think the U.S. and its um, allies in Haiti uh, recognized the danger of Cherizier even before we did. We were publishing the reports of the RNDDH on Cherizier and the massacre, so-called massacre in La Saline, um, really up till 2019. And uh, really it was in early 2021 that uh, my director sat me down and said, listen, Kim, we've got it all wrong. Uh, This guy is serious. He's good. You know, it was almost a reflex because there have been uh, bad guys uh, in the past. In the 1991 to 94 coup, there was a fellow called Toto Constant who led a death squad called the Frap. Uh, He he was a scoundrel. He was a... a, uh, a death squad leader. Uh, the same thing for Guy Philippe in the uh, 2001 to 2004 campaign to overthrow Aristide. Uh, he was uh, uh, working in the cops, the army to cops, and tried to make a coup and finally came back and succeeded in making a coup. So uh, people were just saying, okay, this is the new Toto Constar, the new Guy Philippe. No, this is something else entirely. But they were able to really take that and you know, present it. And in a way, the irony is a lot of the uh, struggle we've been making to get to truth is not even so much against the mainstream, uh, against the uh, Haitian oligarchy, uh, radio stations and newspapers and the U.S., 
but uh, even against the left uh, in the U.S. and in Haiti, who uh, have totally swallowed this this line, hook, line, and sinker. Kim, Kim let, me, let me stop you there because I only have a minute. Just talk specifically because there have been uh, assassination attempts against him, and I think they have killed two of his subordinates, if I'm correct. Correct. Well, uh, there are probably more, but we talk about Menino uh, in the film. But more recently, just uh, about seven weeks ago, uh, one of his key allies in the area of La Saline, where he holds press conferences, a guy called T. Junior, uh, was gunned down under still unexplained circumstances. It may have been from uh, within his own corps. Uh, we're learning, uh, or it may have been a rival. Uh, but in any case, yes, this is the huge danger. He is extremely exposed and he's aware of it. Uh, so, uh, you know, this is a tremendous uh, challenge to be able to navigate the treachery of uh, these waters and the, the, the people who uh, surely are being sent by U.S. intelligence agencies and others uh, to infiltrate the movement and get close to Cherizier, win his confidence. He already had uh, one fellow who he uh, introduced me to the first time I met him in April of 2021. And he said, if I something happens to me, he says this all the time, something happens to me, uh, this guy will take over. Well, this guy turned out to be uh, in some ways uh, working for his uh, demise and ended up doing an ambush where another fellow called Sanson of the Crachet du Feu group, um, which was a G9 affiliate, uh, was killed. Uh, Cherizier escaped unharmed. But uh, yes, so two that we know of uh, recently have uh, been killed. Menino was killed by the cops. Uh, so yes, he's he's really up against it, both from within and without. And, um, you know, we're, we're waiting to see what will happen uh, in the coming period where the U.S. is really put a target on him, even got the UN Security Council to identify him as the one person in Haiti to be sanctioned uh, when they took a vote back in November of 2022. Great. We're going to stop there. That was Dan Cullen and Kim Ives on their film, Another Vision, Inside Haiti's Uprising. I want to thank the Real News Network and its production team, Cameron Granadino, Adam Coley, David Hebden, and Kayla Rivera. You can find me at chrisedges.substack.com.